0: Picture this. You are working the night shift in the emergency department when Adrian brings in his father, Alex. Alex is unable to give you a history, so Adrian explains, my dad lives with me. For the past few days, he has been confused, tired, and coughing up green stuff. This morning, he said he wanted to get ready for his wedding, but mom died 15 years ago. On exam, Alex is lethargic. His blood pressure is 80 over 62 millimeters of mercury. Heart rate is 116 beats per minute. He is breathing 30 times per minute. And his temperature is 101.3 Fahrenheit. He has crackles at the right lower lung base. And his skin is warm to the touch, but clammy. You immediately begin IV fluid resuscitation. Order labs and imaging. Alex's white blood cell count and serum creatinine are markedly elevated. His chest X-ray demonstrates a right lower lobe pneumonia. Despite two liters of IV fluids, Alex becomes more lethargic and his blood pressure does not improve. What is causing Alex's hemodynamic condition? Which medication should be given and why? Without treatment, what do you expect to happen to Alex's condition? Welcome to Audio Bricks. I'm Laurel Toft, bringing cardiology and critical care from our bricks to your ears. After completing this brick, you will be able to 1. Define shock 2. Explain why fluid resuscitation is a first-line treatment for hypovolemic shock 3. Identify vasopressors used in distributive shock 4. Describe the mechanism of the inotropes and mechanical devices used to treat cardiogenic shock. 5. Outline the management of neurogenic shock. And 6. Explain the pathophysiology and treatment of obstructive shock. Part 1. What is shock? Shock occurs when end organs do not receive enough oxygen, usually due to reduced blood flow resulting from hypotension. Shock is defined as a state of widespread cellular and tissue hypoxia, which results when the supply of oxygen to cells fails to meet the minimum requirement to keep them functioning properly. Now, this shortage is not immediately fatal, but it can rapidly progress to multi-organ system failure and death if not corrected quickly. In this audio brick, we will focus on stabilizing the patient while searching for the underlying cause of shock, for example, infection, trauma, or heart failure. There are five types of shock. First, distributive shock arises from systemic vasodilation, which can be triggered by conditions such as sepsis or anaphylaxis. Second, and my personal favorite as a cardiologist, cardiogenic shock can result from conditions such as heart failure or myocardial infarction leading to low cardiac output from low stroke volume. Next, hypovolemic shock is caused by low intravascular volume that leads to low preload and low cardiac output. It can be caused by hemorrhage or severe dehydration. Fourth, neurogenic shock is caused by the loss of sympathetic output from the central nervous system, leading to a global loss of arterial tone, cardiac output, heart rate, and preload or venous tone. Neurogenic shock can follow head or spinal cord trauma. And finally, obstructive shock is due to an obstruction of blood flow through the heart. There are two types, pulmonary or structural. In the pulmonary type, a pulmonary embolus causes increased resistance to flow within the pulmonary circulation and prevents blood from reaching the left side of the heart. In the structural type, there is global obstruction of flow through the heart caused by cardiac tamponade or tension pneumothorax. The hemodynamic findings of the different types of shock are detailed in the shock brick. A very useful way to categorize the different types of shock is by describing the primary or causative hemodynamic insult and the resulting hemodynamic compensations or variations. You can pause here to try quizzing yourself on the primary insult for all five types of shock. But let's try one example. What is the primary hemodynamic insult and compensatory changes in cardiogenic shock? The primary hemodynamic insult in cardiogenic shock is low cardiac output due to decreased stroke volume. The compensatory mechanisms are increased heart rate in an attempt to improve cardiac output and increased systemic vascular resistance to try and maintain the mean arterial pressure. Understanding the primary hemodynamic insult has important consequences for treatment, so make sure you've got it down before moving on. Part 2. Why do we initially give intravenous fluids to most shock patients? When treating a hypotensive patient, the first step is to stabilize blood flow and organ perfusion. To do this, we often give the patient a bolus of IV fluids, for example, lactated ringer solution or normal saline, unless the patient has evidence of volume overload. More on that in a minute. Administering IV fluids is the most effective treatment for hypovolemic shock. Here, the primary insult is low cardiac preload. The lower preload causes reductions in both stroke volume and cardiac output, which, in turn, lowers the mean arterial pressure, the MAP. Fluid resuscitation increases preload, raising cardiac output, and restoring MAP. The effect is most marked in those with hypovolemic shock, but may be useful as well in those with mild distributive shock. Blood can be used instead of IV fluids, but is generally reserved for those with overt hemorrhagic shock. Giving IV fluids carries little risk, which is why IV fluids are used in many hypotensive patients, even before the precise cause of low blood pressure or shock is identified. In fact, the patient's response to IV fluids is often diagnostic. If the blood pressure responds promptly, you're probably dealing with hypovolemic shock and not one of the other types. When should you not give IV fluids? Well, patients should not receive IV fluids if they have obvious volume overload and cardiogenic shock, often manifested by pulmonary edema, which is diagnosed when there is measured hypoxia, interstitial edema on chest X-ray, and pulmonary crackles on chest exam. In patients with pulmonary edema, IV fluids may worsen the hypoxia and potentially cause respiratory failure. Question. Why is IV fluid an effective first treatment for most types of shock? Answer is, administering IV fluid serves two purposes. It increases preload, and a positive response can diagnose hypovolemic shock. Part 3. How do we manage distributive shock with vasopressors? Distributive shock is caused by arteriolar vasodilation, which reduces systemic vascular resistance, or SVR. Therefore, vasopressor drugs, sometimes referred to as, quote, pressors, which cause constriction of the arterioles, are an effective treatment. The following is a list of receptors and the pressors that activate them to achieve vasoconstriction. Alpha-1 adrenergic receptors are activated by norepinephrine, epinephrine, or phenylephrine. Vasopressin V1A receptors are activated by vasopressin. And dopaminergic receptors are activated by, you guessed it, dopamine. Although the use of these pressor drugs varies and can be customized for an individual patient, norepinephrine is the drug of choice for most patients with distributive shock because it has been shown in survival studies to have an advantage. Norepi acts at the alpha-1, beta-1, and beta-2 adrenergic receptors. This drug causes vasoconstriction via the alpha-1 and tachycardia via the beta-1 stimulation. As you can imagine, one adverse effect of norepi is tachyarrhythmias. Like the other presser drugs, norepinephrine should only be used when absolutely necessary in pregnant patients in particular, as these drugs may cause early pregnancy termination through uterine arterial constriction. Vigorous use of IV fluids should be tried first. While norepinephrine is the drug of choice for distributive shock, other drugs are added if the MAP remains low despite norepinephrine treatment. Epinephrine, the most potent of all these vasopressors, acts strongly at the alpha-1, beta-1, and beta-2 receptors. The overall effect is profound vasoconstriction and tachycardia. Epinephrine frequently causes tachyarrhythmias and constriction of gut and brain vessels, which is one reason why this drug is preferred less than norepinephrine for most patients despite its greater potency. Phenylephrine specifically activates alpha-1 receptors. Therefore, it causes only vasoconstriction. Unlike the other agents, it sometimes causes a reflex bradycardia. The drug-induced increase in blood pressure is detected by baroreceptors, which then trigger a reflexive parasympathetic signal to slow the heart rate. Vasopressin, also known as antidiuretic hormone, or ADH, has many functions in the body, including vasoconstriction of smooth muscle cells. As a pressor drug, it acts through vasopressin-specific V1A receptors to constrict the vascular smooth muscle cells. Vasopressin has no direct effect on heart rate because the receptors are not located on pacemaker cells in the heart. So, vasopressin may be preferred for patients who have shock with severe tachycardia. Dopamine is considered both a vasopressor and a weak inotrope, meaning a stimulator of cardiac contractility. Dopamine is actually the precursor to norepinephrine. It acts not only through alpha and beta adrenergic receptors, but also through dopaminergic specific receptors in multiple locations. Dopamine is everywhere, including the kidneys, the blood vessels, and the brain as a neurotransmitter. When dopamine is used to treat shock, it has the effects of raising blood pressure and increasing heart rate. It may sometimes exert a mild diuretic effect by increasing renal blood flow. Side effects include tachycardia and tachyarrhythmias, as is the case with most of the other pressor drugs. Dopamine is not a preferred first-line agent due to excess mortality in certain shock studies. Now, these drugs can be used in combination, and it's common to mix drugs with different receptor targets, for example, using norepinephrine with vasopressin. It's a good idea to quiz yourself on which drugs work at which receptors. Let's try one. Which vasopressor acts only at alpha 1 adrenergic receptors? Phenylephrine selectively stimulates alpha 1 receptors. Part 4. How do we manage cardiogenic shock? Of course, I think cardiogenic shock is special because I'm a cardiologist. But the truth is, cardiogenic shock can be very tricky to identify because not all patients are overtly hypotensive, and the presentation is sometimes more subtle than the other forms of shock. The treatment of cardiogenic shock is also different than all the other types because vasopressors are the exact wrong treatment. The primary insult for cardiogenic shock is low stroke volume causing low cardiac output. Inotropes are a class of medications that increase cardiac contractility and stroke volume and are therefore used to treat cardiogenic shock. The two main inotropes are dobutamine and milrinone. Inotropes need to be used carefully in the setting of myocardial infarction or chest pain. This is because inotropes so strongly stimulate the heart that the energy expended may exceed oxygen supply in patients with coronary ischemia or myocardial infarction. Dobunamine acts through beta 1 adrenergic receptors using a G protein mechanism that operates by activating adenyl cyclase, which leads to greater production of cyclic adenosine monophosphate, or CAMP. Cyclic AMP, in turn, stimulates the influx of intracellular calcium. And remember that intracellular calcium is important for cardiac myosat contraction. More calcium equals more contraction. Dobutamine strongly stimulates beta-1 receptors, causing an increase in cardiac contractility and heart rate, and therefore cardiac output. By weakly stimulating the beta-2 receptors, dobutamine also causes mild arteriolar vasodilation, reducing the SVR and afterload, which is great since the SVR tends to be high in cardiogenic shock as the body tries to maintain MAP. Remember, MAP equals SVR times cardiac output. It has minimal effect on alpha-1 receptors, so dobutamine causes little or no vasoconstriction. Dibutamine can raise the heart rate substantially and can also precipitate ventricular and atrial arrhythmias through its beta-1 stimulation. And because it causes the vasodilation, it can sometimes lower the blood pressure. The inotrope milrinone works differently. It inhibits phosphodiesterase-3, PDE3. PDE3 lies downstream inside smooth muscle cells and on the beta-1 pathway. PDE3 degrades cyclic adenosine monophosphate into AMP, which leads to a decrease in intracellular calcium and therefore a decrease in contractility. So, by inhibiting PDE3, milrinone decreases cyclic AMP degradation and thus increases myocyte intracellular calcium and cardiac contractility. Like dibutamine, the net effect is increased stroke volume and cardiac output. By inhibiting PDE3, milrinone also causes vasodilation throughout the vasculature. Milrinone's combined effect of increasing contractility and decreasing afterload make it great for treating cardiogenic shock. Milrinone's side effects include a reflux increase in heart rate and tachyarrhythmias, although typically less than what is seen with dobutamine. Milrinone is cleared through the kidneys, so the doses need to be adjusted in patients with renal failure. Time for a quick quiz. What is the mechanism of milrinone? Milrinone inhibits PDE3, leading to vasodilation and increased cardiac contractility, also called inotropy. Although you will hear and learn elsewhere about digoxin, another inotrope, it is rarely used for shock because it's only a weak inotrope, it has a narrow therapeutic window, and when used long-term, it has significant side effects. Some patients with severe cardiogenic shock do not respond to drugs alone and require placement of a mechanical assist device to support them until their hearts recover. Data on survival benefit for these devices is minimal to lacking, but they're often used in severe refractory cases. These devices should not be used in patients with sepsis, bleeding, or severe aortic disease. The first and oldest device is an intra-aortic balloon pump, IABP. This is basically a balloon on a stick that lies in the proximal aorta and coordinates with the ECG to reduce afterload and therefore make it easier for a weak heart to pump blood, theoretically. Recent data shows no mortality benefit for balloon pumps in the treatment of cardiogenic shock. Then there's the percutaneous left ventricular assist devices. These require surgical placement and come with a higher risk than a balloon pump. They can be used to support the ventricle by actually increasing cardiac output through a pump mechanism that takes blood out of the left ventricle and delivers it into the aorta. And finally, there's ECMO, Extracorporeal Membrane Oxygenation. This provides complete cardiopulmonary support for patients with both cardiac and respiratory failure. Full hemodynamic support can be provided by this method, which requires intense and specialized monitoring and has many potential risks. Part 5. How are other types of shock managed? So far, we've covered hypovolemic, distributive, and cardiogenic shock, which happen to be the three most common types, but it's also important to know how to treat the others. Neurogenic shock is generally supported with IV fluids or occasionally vasopressors until the autonomic nervous system recovers. The pulmonary type of obstructive shock from a pulmonary embolus is treated initially with IV fluids and pressor drugs if needed. Then it is definitively treated by dissolving or removing the embolus, often with thrombolytic drugs like tissue plasminogen activator. The structural causes of obstructive shock are treated initially with IV fluids and then with surgical techniques to correct the obstruction. Cardiac tamponade is treated by withdrawing pericardial fluid, called a pericardiocentesis. Tension pneumothorax is treated with a thoracostomy tube placed to alleviate the high pressure in the pleural space. Okay, question time! What is the definitive treatment for a patient with shock due to pulmonary embolism? Dissolving the thrombus with thrombolytic drugs, for example, TPA, or removing the thrombus mechanically are the treatments of choice for obstructive shock due to a PE. And that's it for management of shock. Let's check your knowledge and see what we've learned today. First, can you define shock? Shock is a state of widespread cellular hypoxia due to inadequate blood flow often manifest by hypotension. Next, can you explain why fluid resuscitation is a first-line treatment for hypovolemic shock? In hypovolemic shock, the primary insult is low preload. By giving IV fluids, preload and therefore cardiac output are restored. IV fluids are a good first-line treatment for undifferentiated shock because they cause relatively little harm unless there's pulmonary edema and can help make the diagnosis. Can you identify the vasopressors used in distributive shock and the receptors that they target? Norepinephrine is preferred for distributive shock. It stimulates adrenergic alpha-1, beta-1, and beta-2 receptors. Alternative vasopressor drugs include epinephrine, alpha-1, beta-1, beta-2, phenylephrine, alpha-1, vasopressin, V1A, and dopamine, dopaminergic receptors. What are the inotropes that treat cardiogenic shock and what are their mechanisms? Dobutamine acts through adrenergic receptors and causes both vasodilation and increases in inotropy. Mironone is an inotrope that inhibits PDE3, causing vasodilation and increased inotropy. Now, can you outline the treatment of neurogenic shock? Neurogenic shock is treated with IV fluids and sometimes vasopressors until the nervous system starts functioning again. And finally, how is obstructive shock treated? Obstructive shock due to pulmonary embolism may be treated with thrombolytic drugs or mechanical removal of the thrombus. Structural obstructive shock is treated with pericardiocentesis in the case of tamponade or thoracostomy for attention pneumothorax. And we're done! Armed with your newfound knowledge, let's think back to your patient from earlier in this episode. Alex, who was brought to the ER by his son, presented with lethargy, hypotension, fever, elevated white blood cell count, and pneumonia. What is causing his hemodynamic condition? Which medications are used to treat him? And what will happen if you don't treat him appropriately? Alex has pneumonia causing septic or distributive shock. The byproducts of sepsis lead to arterial vasodilation, low systemic vascular resistance, and low MAP. His high heart rate is a compensatory mechanism. In addition to giving him broad-spectrum antibiotics to treat his pneumonia, you ordered norepinephrine, a vasopressor, to increase his SVR and MAP. Without rapid treatment, Alex's condition would quickly devolve into multi-organ system failure and death due to overwhelming tissue necrosis. But thanks to your rapid diagnosis and treatment, Alex is admitted to the ICU where he improves over the course of three days. And that's our show. If you like this episode, send us a comment or give us a thumbs up. Until next time.